Hi, beautiful people. I'm Brenda Davies, the creator and host of God is Grey, as well as the author of On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel. And last week on God is Grey, we got into the number of sexual partners, what is now known as body counts in a lot of circles. And this was really my response to what it was like to grow up in purity culture, swing into hookup culture, and then figure out what it meant to be a promiscuous woman. So next week, we're going to talk about sexual integrity and how I centered out and really figured out the balance between purity culture and hookup culture. But just as a beautiful in-between, today we're going to talk to Sheila Ray Gregoire. Sheila is a popular speaker, marriage blogger, and the author of eight books, including The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Great Sex Rescue. Sheila's passion is for marriage, and she and her husband Keith speak together at marriage outreaches and at Family Life Canada marriage conferences. Sheila believes in authenticity and gives real solutions to the very real and messy problems women and couples can face. I love this conversation. You'll see that although Sheila and I are not completely aligned on what it means to live in sexual integrity as a Christian, her believing that sex is for marriage and me believing that there's flexibility and freedom to explore outside of marriage, Sheila is still holding the line and demanding that toxic evangelical messages about sex are apologized and repented for and reformed. Sheila is quite the badass, part of my friends. She is educated, devoted to data, and fact-based sex education. Praise God. So I really hope you enjoy this. Now on to the conversation. Hi, Sheila. Hi, it's good to be here. It's so good to have you. Right before I pressed record, I was just talking to you about how we come from um different backgrounds. We've lived different lives, um, especially as it pertains to our sexuality. But I also am so honored and blessed and happy to find that we are simultaneously so aligned on the issues we see within church and how it's addressed sexuality and marriage and female pleasure and egalitarianism. And we just have so many things that I know we're going to see eye to eye on. And I am so grateful that you have done and are continuing to do the work that you do because I didn't know a sex educator existed like you in the church. Like most of the women that I know of in that space kind of, you know, latched onto and believed a lot of these toxic messages and bits of toxic theology. And we're sort of just leading everyone into the same spaces over and over again. And I've said on this channel so many times, like the, the verse about looking at the fruit, like, how can you continue to see all of this rotten fruit spring up? How can you continue to teach youth groups and children and young women, what it is to be married and what's going to make an exceptional Christian marriage with a million orgasms until you both die in bliss together versus counseling Christian couples in all of the dysfunction that those messages created. Mm -hmm. You're the first educator I've seen to bridge those two gaps and to say it in a way that's like, I mean, when I read your book, uh, the great sex rescue. I was, 
<laughs> there are many times where I was like, if I don't throw my computer against the wall right now, <laughs> it'd be a miracle. There are so many deplorable quotes in here from educators, married people in the Christian space. It's, it's something that someone could archive in a thousand years later, pull up your book and be like, holy moly, I can't believe that's what they were teaching about sex. That's disgusting. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you hold that balance so beautifully, Sheila, and say, hey, I'm still in this with you guys. I just want to illuminate where we've messed up. That's my, that's my dissertation on you. I'm just so grateful that you're standing there in that space. Well, thank you. You know, I love the fact that you brought up what Jesus said about fruit, because that really is the passage that I think um, has come to encapsulate everything that we're doing. So there was a team of us uh, who wrote the great sex rescue, including my daughter, which is weird to write about orgasms, orgasms with your daughter, but <laughs> awesome. Um, so my daughter and another uh, statistician, because what we basically embarked on was we said, okay, look, people have been arguing about this stuff for so long. Like what is healthy marriage teaching? And some people will say it's this, and some people will say it's this. And I just said, nobody's ever actually studied it. Let's take Jesus seriously. If Jesus said that you will recognize them by their fruits. And if Jesus said a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit, then if we measure the fruit, we will know whether the teaching is good or bad. And so we, we did the biggest study that's ever been done of primarily evangelical women. Um, 20,000 women answered our survey. Uh, and we asked like at least 130 questions. Some had more, if you were married more than once or different things, you, you got on a different track, which maybe had like 200 questions. Wow. Um, but we asked first about marital satisfaction, then about sexual satisfaction. And then we asked a whole bunch of different typical teachings about marriage and sex Said, have you ever been taught this? And have you ever believed it? And from that, we could actually measure okay, if women believed X and then women didn't believe X, was there a difference in marital or sexual satisfaction? And we were able to see which teachings really seriously bear bad fruit. And so, hey, how about we stop teaching this stuff? Mm, oh my God. That's, that's so gorgeous too, because again, me here on my channel, God is Gray, like I named it God is Gray because honestly, I felt that name was divinely given to me. And also because it resonates so deeply with what I'm doing and what with what people like you are doing in this space, which is to say, we've got to get rid of these binaries and these notions that there are black and whites in these arenas. And we, if you just stick to these 14 points of morality, then your life is going to go swimmingly. And you'll, you know, like all of that stuff. It's like, I've seen people just put those blinders on and just steamroll ahead. Like, and they're wondering why there's this mass exodus from their churches. They're blaming mm -hmm. the deconstruction movement. They're blaming culture and porn. And it's like, it's, it's not just that. It's the fact that you as a church and an institution are refusing to look at the data. So mm -hmm. for you to go in there with a data-driven mind and say, let's actually look at this and stop pretending it's not happening. Because for me, I hear from my audience all the time, like, even yesterday I was talking to a friend and he was like, you know what I could use a little bit of, like, you know why I've never stepped foot in a church. 
an ounce of humility, an Mm -hmm. ounce of, I think it could be this, but maybe it's not, or I think it could be this, but it's clearly not working. So let's reassess. Mm -hmm. So again, like, ugh just could commend you a million times over for this work that you've done. And how has the response been within, you know, more conservative spaces? Um, it's, it's interesting. There kind of is, it's two different groups. So the book's been selling really well. Okay. So ever, if you go to, to amazon.com, look up great sex rescue and just read the reviews. I think we've got over 1800 reviews now. Um, and they're phenomenal. Like just people saying, this has really set me free. I finally understand that God doesn't hate me, you know, <laughs> and a lot of things like that. Like, like I was so messed up in my view of what God thought about me as a woman. Um, and so that, that's been so encouraging to me. So, yeah. So, so women have been reading it. A lot of counselors have been reading it. And, um, I know I've taught, I've zoomed in to a number of different, um, seminaries, their counseling programs. I've done some lectures to their students. So that's exciting. And, Mm. um, and I know I hear from people all the time, my counselor recommended me your book and it's been incredible. Um, and a lot of small time pastors have, have, really embraced it too. Um, the people who haven't are the establishment. Mm. So we, what we did in, in great <laughs> John Piper. Is, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we identified these big messages. That was, that was the big, that was part of the big thing we did. But the other thing we did, like you said, is we actually read the best selling books and we pulled out all these terrible quotes. So we found where these messages were being taught. So for instance, you know, Emerson Egrich, Love and Respect, one of the best-selling evangelical marriage books says, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Yeah. So women don't need sex. And the need is for physical release. Okay. So, um, and if he doesn't get physical release, he'll come under satanic attack. So, <laughs> so it's not I about that Bible verse. Where is that? Yeah, exactly. So it's not about intimacy. There's not a single word in the whole chapter on sex about how a woman can and should feel pleasure too. In fact, what he does say is why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? Uh, the thing I always say to that too is WTF, do we have a clitoris? If we, were, if we were not made for pleasure, God would have just left that one out. Exactly. But you know, um, what really amazed us was how many books talked about the obligation that women had to give sex, but they didn't talk about the right that women have within marriage to experience pleasure. And in fact, that's one of the things that we're trying to do is redefine what sex is. Yes. Because like, if I say to you, you know, did you have sex last night, which I'm not going to ask because I don't want to know, but anyway, like, <laughs> and that's creepy. Like I'm not going to be creepy. Right? But what you're picturing I'm asking is penis and vagina move around until they climax. Like that's our definition of sex. Mm-hmm. And if that's our definition, she could be making a grocery list in her head, right? She could be lying there in emotional turmoil, or she could even be coerced or in physical pain and it would still count as having sex. Yeah. And my point is that is not biblical. Like for all these people who say that they're teaching the biblical message, the biblical message is not that the Bible talks about sex as something intimate. Okay. Genesis four verse one, Adam knew his wife, Eve. It's easy to forget to laugh that off, but 
you know, God uses like they're the same Hebrew word is used in the Psalms when David says, search me and know me. Oh God. It's like a deep intimacy, a deep longing to be connected. So, you know, it's intimate song of songs, Bible book. That's about sex. She says more things than he does. Like she's having a good time. So it's pleasurable for both. And in, in first Corinthians seven, those famous do not deprive verses, which is so often weaponized against women. It's mutual. Everything that he gets, she gets too. It's not about obligation. It's about mutuality. Yes, of course. But then what we were taught in church and in all of these toxic books are that the men, when you're meeting each other and you have that mutuality, the mutuality is that you give him the physical pleasure of sex and in return will give you the emotional connection that you so desperately need or he'll, you know, just do some dishes because that's serving you as a woman so that he can just Mm-hmm. use you as a masturbata- masturbation item, basically mm-hmm. like a blow up doll. And like, I know that makes women feel insane as well, because I have a high sex drive and I, mm-hmm. you know, I do not, I have not historically had sex just for the intimacy of it. And, and it was for the pleasure and physicality of it. So I just knew from my lived experience that it was absolutely untrue. And then talking to so many women in my life, especially at my age now, the amount of conversations I've had about it so many times, more often than not men, I mean, I don't even want to propose why this might be, but they desire sex less. I have so many friends and relationships who are like begging. They're like, I'm so horny. I'm going to die. And, um, I, the fact that that's never been represented or that we've been just silently going around pretending Mm -hmm. that we're not in it for the pleasure as well. And then because of that belief, enduring pain and allowing terrible things to happen to our body, like against our consent, because, oh, well, you're not supposed to be enjoying it anyway. So of course you're not enjoying it. Oh, exactly. I mean, the gender essentialism that is in our marriage books, like evangelicalism's marriage books is quite astounding. You know, uh, even, even the fact that so many of our books are set up as gender essentialist books. So we have for women only and for men only. So for women only tells you what men are like, for men only tells you what women are like, um, his needs, her needs, you know, the five big needs of women and the five big needs of men. And of course they're different and it just doesn't work that way. Everything is on a bell curve. Okay. It's, you can't say women are like this and men are, even the idea that men are visual. We're always told this, right. Men are visual in a way that women will never understand. The most recent meta-analyses do not say that at all. The brains are not different in the way that they, that they say they're different. Um, women are just as visually stimulated, but, but subjectively we're often stimulated by different things than men are. And we have, we have higher arousal non-concordance, meaning that our bodies might be aroused, but our minds are not or vice versa. So it's not that we don't get stimulated. It's just that it's slightly different, but it's still visual. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's really creepy, but But the whole thing about sex drives is interesting because um, what we found is that 58% of of marriages, he has the higher sex drive, 19% she does, and 23% is pretty equal. But this isn't a Christian survey, right? Yeah, no, it primarily is. Most of our our people are Christian. But, and this is is the important part, when you look at um, surveys in the secular world, 
more women have higher sex drives than in the Christian world. (laughs) And we were trying to figure out why. And we identified some big reasons. Um, and, And this was one of the big theses of our of our book of the great sex rescue is that evangelical teaching artificially lowers women's libido. Mm. And we found that there are certain teachings that are really associated with the, with a lowering of women's libido. One of them, for instance, is um, all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. So when women are taught this or believe it, libidos fall mm. because you, sex is just a threat. Guys are disgusting and gross. Yeah. No, we're going to get more into that because I've like pulled some atrocious quotes. From <laughs> um, but I love that you're bringing this up because in reading your book, like Last week, I put out a video about what I call my tram page, which is, you know, swinging from purity culture to hookup culture. And in that time frame, especially my most promiscuous moments, I am up to 57 men. And I know that's a high number for some, for some in LA or like metropolitan areas, I find that I'm more on the average or even below average sometimes. So it's like, it's all of that is interesting. The, the number game of it and what we even count as sex, you know, cause queer mm-hmm. sex is different. Doesn't necessarily involve penetration. So all that said, Next week, I'm going to do a video on sexual integrity and what it's meant to me to balance out and figure out how to center myself and not be in either of these cultures because I found them both toxic. I was disembodied in both. I wasn't intuitive in either. I wasn't being mindful. I wasn't always, I didn't know mutuality or consent as words. So I got into trouble and had traumatic experiences. Like there's so much. And at the same time in reading your book, I was like, well, God, doesn't this just make a good case for like waiting for a marriage doesn't necessarily work because for me, I know, I know sex very well because of my experiences. And there are people that I never expected to have chemistry with, but they bring something to the table and it's, it's beautiful. And then there's other people where you think it's going to work really well. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this does not work. We're just not compatible. So all of that said, like, it was hard to not read your book as someone who is a Christian as well, but not in the space that I don't know. I no longer hold the belief that we should be saving ourselves for marriage. And Mm -hmm. you can talk to me about that too. And I would be curious of your perspective, but in reading your book, it was like, God, and this is why between the toxic theology, all of the the moments of lack of pleasure and and ignorance around women's bodies and and the way the men, their their mind frame about it, like it's just, it feels like a riskier space to be in than just being like, you know what, I'm going to explore and figure out what's right for me. Like, not that I would tell everyone to do that, but for me, your book made me feel like, thank God I'm not doing that. (laughs) So I don't know. What would you say to that? Um, a couple of things. Our big thing, like I said, my big thing is fruit, right? What is the fruit? And even though toxic teachings bear bad fruit, there are certain things which bear good fruit. Um, and, and what they have found is that, and this isn't just my study. You'll, you'll find this on, um, some of the really large secular studies too done in in academic journals, but um, religiosity is correlated with better sex. And this is something which we had a hard time um, 
sorting out because we know we know religiosity is correlated with better sex, but we also know toxic teachings make it worse. And so it's like, how do you how do you disentangle all of that? And I think what it comes down to is um, the ability to feel intimate and known with someone does tend to increase women's orgasm rates. Um, and that's pretty that's pretty standard across the board. And I think it's because in order for a woman to really physically respond, there's a great deal of vulnerability involved in that. You need to be able to let go. You need to not be second guessing yourself. You need to be able to be truly and utterly yourself. And in order to do that, you need to be safe. Mm. So vulnerability requires safety, which requires trust. Um, and I think that that is like, my personal opinion is that that is something which God baked into us. And so, you know, and that is, that is a big reason why I think that sex works best and is, is likely intended for, um, definite marriage relationships. I also think there's just a protective factor. I think God is a protective God, you know, and if you think back, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, whenever, if people were just having sex willy-nilly, women and children aren't protected. The only way to protect women and children is through marriage and to keep sex within marriage because then children are born within marriage. But also once the kid is weaned, you can't just get rid of the woman because you've now committed to her for life. So she, so you can't just discard her when she's no longer needed. And I mean, I, I think of that a lot, that God's heart is to care for people who are naturally vulnerable. And, you know, how that translates into a modern world where women can look after themselves now and where women, you know, can um, raise a kid on their own is a matter for debate. Uh, but I think that that multiple studies have still found that in a healthy marriage, you know, that is where people do tend to thrive the most and that's where communities thrive the most. So I think, I think when you just see it that way, I think that that's... Um, that's a big part of God's heart is just to protect us. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because everything you're saying, like when you're talking about, you know, women and children not being abandoned and all of that stuff, like I see when I read the Bible now as a deconstructed Christian, I see things like in the, that period of time and the relevance in that moment, because in that era, yes, if, if you mm -hmm. were, I believe that's why Jesus said that you're not to divorce someone because mm -hmm. if a man divorced a woman and she didn't have her quote virginity, AKA she wasn't penetrated or she was already penetrated by a man that her literal monetary value and worth would go down and she might actually be destitute, not be able to find housing. So I can absolutely see in that time when the Bible was written, why those would be the most relevant and gorgeous things to say to the population within the roles and the constructs that they had in their communities. But now, you know, it's not that I don't believe in it and it's absolutely not that I don't believe in the value of it. I think I would actually love to get married again, but I have so many examples of, you know, people in long-term relationships that were really beautiful and successful, but then they parted ways or I won't give you TMI, but more recently I was going through some very traumatic moments in my life. My son got sick. My dog got hit and run. Like I was just getting pummeled one thing after another. And, um, at the time I was very casually dating one of the most beautiful people I've ever known. Like I, I love him 
and not in a way where I ever wanted to marry him or, or commit to a relationship with him. But when I look back, I don't know what I would have done or how my, my spirit would have fared without the sexual intimacy that he provided for me at that time. And there was so much mutuality. And when you bring up the Bible verse about being known, like I felt very deeply known by him. Like we almost, we had an existing soul connection and intellectually we saw Mm -hmm. life in the same way. And we parted ways because he actually ended up meeting a woman that he wanted to pursue a relationship with. And I cried, but out of this very bittersweet, like, oh my God, I'm so grateful. I had that experience and I'm sorry to see it go, but it didn't cause me like the deep pain or regret or anything that I've also heard in those Christian teachings. And when we think of a woman, you know, being able to relax and it has to come with safety. I absolutely agree with that. You can't be orgasming or, I mean, I think probably physiologically you could end up Mm -hmm. orgasming when you didn't want to. Um, But, you know, all in all, I I've noticed in my life that that sort of safety and mutuality could be created pretty quickly and then move on and shift into something else. So I don't know. I'm just being honest about my life and mm-hmm. what it's been since leaving purity culture and hookup culture. And to me, that was such a relationship of paramount sexual integrity. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we all have our own journeys that we're, that we're looking on and, and, I mean, the great thing about God is he doesn't mind the questions, right? Like he doesn't mind the questions. I mean, I love that you say that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, we had, we had, um, we had a very sad, uh, anniversary last weekend. Um, August 6th was the, uh, the 26, it would have been my son's 26th birthday. Um, my son passed away when he was a baby. Uh, he had a really bad heart defect and we had him for about a month before he died. Um, and it's always, you know, whenever that anniversary comes up, I'm usually fine, you know, throughout the year, but whenever that anniversary comes up, I got out his memory box and I was just holding a teddy bear and holding the last blanket that he was in. Um, and it's just rough, you know, and we're coming up on the anniversary of his death in a couple of weeks. But I guess the one thing that I will say is that the only person in the world who understands how I felt is my husband you know, and, and I've always said, that's why you can't die before me because you're the only one who carries my whole life, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so I, I think I I can't really explain it better than that, but there's something about sharing everything with someone. And he, he has like, like the Bible says that God has bottled our tears, but in many ways, my husband has too, Mm. you know? I don't think that's possible in every marriage because there's a lot of very bad ones, but that is one of the benefits of a, of a, of a really long lasting and good one. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I loved that story in the book about how you two made love when you lost Mm -hmm. your son. And that is really stunning to imagine. And I know so many of us, that's the sort of relationship that we strive towards. Like when you think about marriage forever, that's when I'm like, oh, that I could marry forever. Exactly. Not the other baggage. Um, So let's get into all the other baggage and the hard. Yes. The fun stuff. (laughs) Yes. 
I'm curious since you've been in the, not the game, but the profession of talking about sex and education within the Christian space for a long time, was there a moment in time where you were perpetuating these gender stereotypes or you were teaching things that you no longer find to be true? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I think that my marriage teaching was always quite solid. Um, I've always been egalitarian. I've always been mutuality, you know, emotional health, emotional maturity. Let's aim for, for that. Um, where I gave in a lot was just to the stereotypes that, you know, women are like this, men are like this. And because I fit the stereotypes, it's easy to assume that that is what it is, you know? And yeah. I'm, I'm in, I was in the situation where we were teaching at marriage conferences um, since we were fairly young in our mid thirties, they brought us on to be the younger couple. There was all, we were always paired with an older couple. And um, so we were teaching at marriage conferences. I was doing lots of speaking on my own and yeah, I wasn't perpetuating all the terrible stuff, but certainly some <laughs> of it like, um, and, and I, I don't even know if it's specific teachings as much as emphasis. Like the one thing that I've really stopped doing is I do not see the problem in marriages being frequency. The problem is not women's low libido. That's not the problem. Why would women want something which is terrible for them? If women have low libido, the question is, okay, wow, let's figure out why. It's not, let's tell women to prioritize sex more. Um, and, and that's where I've really changed. And so, you know, I pulled, I pulled a couple of my oldest books. I asked the publisher to put them out of print. I asked my publisher to rewrite um, my, my flagship book from before, Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I totally rewrote it because wow. I was like, no, I can't stand behind that anymore. So. Oh my gosh. I love you. I appreciate that so much. I mean, that's the other stunning thing about so many people in the conservative Christian space that makes everyone so angry is the unwillingness to be challenged or to mm -hmm. consider accountability and attack. As I saw on your Instagram, like it's okay to be wrong, but I think maybe that's something we were taught in Christianity too, that like perfectionism is it. And if you're a leader, and um, especially a faith leader that you have to like practice what you pe preach and you have to be perfect. And no one could live up to that, including with these teachings. Like there are so many people that infuriate me, but at this point, the, the ones that really infuriate me are the ones that are just holding fast to it and pretending that we're the problem for pointing out the egregious issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, you know, we called out a lot of big names. We called out Steve Arterburn, who wrote Every Man's Battle, um, Shanti Felton, who wrote For Women Only. Um, you know, since the publication of the book, we've called out Gary Thomas more because in his in his new book, um, Married Sex, which which came out after Great Sex Rescue, and he read Great Sex Rescue before it was published. So we know that he knows what our findings were. He still very much um, talked about how, you know, men need sex in a way that women don't. But he also said really awful things like uh, that women get aroused giving hand jobs postpartum, you know, and, and men need these and and that um, it's a good idea to text naked photos to your husband. So neurologically, he's he is turned on by you and not by other women. 
Uh, but if those photos get hacked, I bet it's just your fault that you took those photos. Yeah, I mean, like revenge porn is a thing. And, <laughs> you know, and besides that, you you don't you don't defeat porn by becoming porn. Like, it's just it's so wrong on every level. I hate it. I hate it. Ugh, I really mm, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we've been calling these guys out and um the response, there hasn't been a lot of public response from them because honestly, I don't know what they can say. Like we've got the numbers, we've got the data, right? But the only thing that um, they have said is that I'm not going about this in a kingdom way because I could have, I should have come to them individually and I shouldn't have published it. Oh, shut up. Shut <laughs> that's kind of my, that's kind yeah, of. Why don't you not publish lies about our sexuality without cons- having us consent to that? Shut up. Shut your yeah, mouth. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's like, you're not the victim here. The victims are yeah. the people who, who were hurt by your books. And in the Bible, people like the whole, the whole old Testament is prophets calling out the Kings. And then in the new Testament, when there's false teaching in public, it's corrected in public. So I'm just following the Bible. There you yeah, go. You're fine. I'm not worried about you. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing too, the fact that anyone would stand there and again, you know, shoot the messenger when the message is that not only are women just like suffering because they're not orgasming, it also leads to marital assault and rape and coercion. Like you should be genuinely concerned that your words are doing that to people that yeah. it's atrocious that you're not stepping up to the plate to acknowledge that taking Bible verses out of context to say, no, stop with no, that. Exactly. Yeah. And as we pointed out, um, so we looked at the, at 13 of the best-selling sex and marriage books and the one word that was missing from all of them was consent. Mm-hmm. Just I didn't know the word about. consent until probably five or six years ago. You know, it's also a lot of what I say too, is that the the hookup culture, purity culture, they have so many things in common. And one of the main things is they both completely lack sex education. Mm-hmm. I didn't know consent among like in either of those cultures. I didn't know the word mutuality. I didn't know anything about actual integrity um, because they have been fully irresponsible in that regard. And we've made so many advancements too, with just getting this language out there, especially post the Me Too movement. And it really needs to be, uh, people really need to come to the table and and bare minimum talk about consent and mutuality. Mm-hmm. And that, like rape is a thing in marriage, you know, rape is totally a thing and it doesn't always look like someone holding you down. Yeah. I, I've had women email me saying, um, I have to have sex with my husband before we go to the beach you know, or else he just checks at all the other women, or he's just terrible with the kids, or I have to have sex before small group, or else he'll tell an embarrassing story about me. (gasps) Like that's sexual coercion. Oh my God. Yes. Beautiful people. Today's episode is sponsored by Feels. What is Feels, you ask? Feels is a premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Their premium CBD will keep your head clear and help you feel your best while naturally reducing stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. Now, I've been loving Feels because I get anxious. When I have so much to do and my head is spinning, it's tempting to just get so stressed that I check out and procrastinate. You feel me? However, if I place just a few drops of Feels under my 
my tongue, I'll feel the difference within minutes and there's no hangover and no addiction. If you're new to CBD or even a bit skeptical, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide you through the discovery process. Also, Feels hassle-free membership program is guaranteed to help you feel your best month after month or your money back. Feels makes it that simple. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash in the gray and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash in the gray to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash in the gray. So to lighten it up for just a second, let's just talk about the orgasm gap Mm -hmm. because again, as an experienced hookup culture girl, I know this is not just in the church. Men in general have not been taught in either culture about women's pleasure. Um, You know, we've been shamed forever about having any desire for sexuality and definitely for exercising that desire or showing it in any way. And then beyond that, There are so many men in the 57 that didn't go down on me, that didn't prioritize making sure that I was there for it in the same way. And obviously this is a gigantic problem within the Christian church because we know about pain in the church. We're all taught about enduring pain for the cross, picking up your cross. But women were literally taught that picking up your cross is enduring sexual pain. And Mm -hmm. the fact that lube could solve half of those problems. I mean, I don't know if that's statistically accurate, but I'm sure a lot of them are just in your findings showing that it was the man not willing to stimulate the woman before penetrating her and then therefore hurting her. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual pain. Okay. Let's do pain and then we'll do the orgasm gap because the the pain question is really important. Um, So It's been known for about 50 years in the academic gynecological literature that evangelical women and highly religious Muslim and Jewish women as well suffer from vaginismus, which is a sexual pain disorder um, where the muscles in the vaginal wall contract so that penetration becomes super painful, if not impossible. And we've known for 50 years that this problem is twice as large in the evangelical world. It's, it's, It's huge. So it's primarily a problem of really you talk to any pelvic floor physiotherapist. And by the way, if you are experiencing <laughs> sexual pain, please see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. If if the pain started, even if it's postpartum, please see a pelvic floor physiotherapist because they really can help. Just a there's my there's my there's one of them. <laughs> yes. Um, but we've known that that it's a big problem. What we haven't known is why. Like what is it specifically? about the religious communities. And that's what we were trying to look for. That's why we wanted so many people to take our survey was because we wanted to, to have enough women who suffered from it. And what we found is that there's one message in particular that really is implicated in sexual pain. And it's the idea that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. When women get married, believing that their chance of experiencing sexual pain increases to almost the same statistical effect as if they had been abused. So what that means is that women's bodies interpret the obligation sex message as trauma. Yes, yes. Because both abuse and the obligation sex message say to a woman, 
you don't matter. He has the right to use you however he wants. Mm -hmm. And so this, and you know, so few books even talk about sexual pain. Um, I think in the 13 books we looked at, two of them did. Well, three of them did, but one gave totally wrong information. Um, They probably said push through it anyway, or like, yeah, it's not a big problem. It'll resolve in a week, which is not true for many women. Are you open to sharing your experience with vaginismus? Yeah. So I would this, and this is probably why I got so interested in it because, you know, I had a horrible case of vaginismus um, in the first few years of my marriage. And I went in those days, we didn't really have pelvic floor physiotherapists. Um, they, I learned that phrase two years ago, probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. So I was carted <laughs> off to a gynecologist and um, he was treating it like the problem was shame, you know? So I just needed to get in, like he was going to hold a mirror as, as he was going to touch all these parts of me and name the, it was, it was so super creepy. I ran out of the room. I was so proud of myself. It's one of the few brave things. Oh, I did the doctor I did that? Yes. <gasps> oh my God. I thought you meant your husband. He was telling no. your husband to do this. Holy no. moly. Oh my, well, pff. Okay, the yeah. medical profession is a whole other podcast. Oh yes. My God. So way to go, little Sheila for running out of the room. But, <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, but it, it did take a while to figure it out. And, you know, it wasn't until we saw the survey results that I finally understood what happened to me. Because I had been looking forward to sex like crazy. And then like right before my wedding, I read the book, The Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye, which is one of the books we critique in The Great Sex Rescue. And it is just full of the obligation sex message. Like, you know, no matter what you need to give to him. And until then I was thinking of sex as something which we were going to enjoy together. But all of a sudden it became something that was for Keith and not for me. And it, uh, there were, uh, I remember reading this book in the, I was in the bathtub, you know, it's before Kindle. So everyone read in the bathtub and, <laughs> you know, I was so mad at the book. I drowned it. Like I, but, but I had already read two thirds of it and then I threw it. And, and those two thirds of the book really impacted me. And when I went back and read it again, I understood finally what, what did it to me. So sexual pain is a real problem. <laughs> yeah. And then how long was your process out of that pain? It took, um, I would say I was a weird case because honestly, giving birth helped me a lot. For a lot of people, that's not the case. It's the opposite. Um, but I did find that it resolved a lot after after giving birth. It, it was it was it was to the point where um sex wasn't painful. Uh, like after about two years, like, you know, he could enter me and then I could do some relaxation exercises and then I'd be okay. But then it wasn't until like, after I'd had a couple of kids where I didn't even have to do the relaxation anymore. So it it took a while, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. Um, oh shoot. I lost what I was going to orgasm gap. We were going to talk about that. I have, I have yeah. a stat for you. That's not in the book. You want to hear that? Yeah, sure. Okay. So basically what we found is that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a sexual encounter. That's not surprising. Um, For evangelical women, the number is about 48 for evangelical married women. Now there's other surveys um, that have found that it's closer to like 64 for women. Um, Sometimes it depends how you're measuring frequency. Like we were really measuring always and some, some, surveys measure like most of the time. So it's like, is it really comparable? But it does seem like the orgasm gap might be lower in the secular world. It's hard. It's hard to tell just because we don't measure it the same way. But um, after we wrote the great sex rescue, we also surveyed men. 
And so, and so we asked both women and men, does he do enough foreplay? Okay. And when women frequently orgasm, both women and men over 90% say, yeah, he does enough foreplay. But when women don't frequently orgasm, (laughs) you know, 80% of men still say they do enough foreplay. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) But so do like 60% of women. Huh. And when you ask, when you ask, does he make your pleasure a priority? 71% of men whose wives don't really orgasm still say yes. And so do 52% of women. So it's like, she's not reaching orgasm, but who's everybody blaming? They're blaming her. Because look, he's trying, you know, he's touching the clitoris. Mm -hmm. for like 60 seconds and nothing's happening. And so she's saying, no, it's okay. Go ahead. Cause we all assume she's just broken. And what no one has told us is about the sexual response cycle. Like you don't go for the clitoris. If she's not excited yet, you wait till she's aroused. You got to do other things to get her excited. Like there's a response cycle, your excitement and then arousal. And if you go for the clit before she's even excited, it's going to feel like a pap smear. Exactly. Exactly. And this is like, um, something that really hurts my heart as well. Just the imagining or not the imagining the stories I've heard about women who weren't ready to have sex on their wedding night and they're coming Mm -hmm. out of purity culture and their husband, it's like, this is the night we've been waiting for. And she knows she has her obligation and duty. Mm -hmm. And she knew that she was excited about it too, in a lot of cases, but you know, Joshua Harris, God bless him for apologizing for what he's done, his book. Um, you know, that sort of don't even kiss until you're married. This, these couples didn't even kiss. Like they never had the experience of foreplay. And then they're supposed to wear a white dress and just get penetrated immediately. Like the learning of each other's bodies, the exploration, what's your quote about this? Don't save sex for. Yeah, don't. Um, uh, yeah, we've always said wait until you're married for sex, and what we'd like to say is wait until you're married, and she's fully aroused. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you're comfortable, and then go. <laughs> exactly. So, like, that's why again, I have a, a hard time with like how we don't in the Christian culture allow teenagers to blossom with their sexuality in a more natural way. That's why I love secular, um, comprehensive sex ed. And you can pair that with the religious elements of it as well, but that foundational truth fact-based education, I feel, I know is so crucial because it's about just giving, empowering them with all the information that they need and then allowing them to make progress in a way that feels right for them, like intuiting within their own heart, spirit, and soul, like, you know, do I want to make out with him? Like, it, you know, we're about whatever, whatever the, the morality around it is just that, that very, like what could be innocent, beautiful exploration. If children up until their teenagehood and their, their sexual awakenings were just taught how to honor each other properly, and then how to explore before this one act of penetration. Mm-hmm. And I know both, again, cultures need it, secular and religious, because we've been taught for so long that that is what sex is, this extremely narrow definition of it. And it's just simply not the case. 
Yeah. You know, um, we have another book coming out next spring, um, based on a huge survey we did of women's youth group experiences and the teachings as teenagers. And I might have to come back and talk to you about this one, but, um, I've got a bunch (laughs) of stats about sex ed, if you want to hear them. Yeah. Are they going to horrify me? (laughs) It's not in great sex rescue. So it's coming out in the new book, which is called she deserves better girls who the more sex ed you had, the more likely you were to end up in healthy relationships in healthy marriages, um, the less likely you were to engage in risky behavior, the less likely you were to be abused. That's a huge one Um, because you have the words for it, right? Here's something interesting too. Women my age, so Gen X women had better sex ed than millennial and Gen Z women. Why? In the church, because we were before purity culture. You know, so we, we actually did better. And we, we presented women with like a whole bunch of different, you know, words like, you know, clitoris, scrotum, you know, or got like all those words. And we asked like, which ones did you know at the point we graduated high school? And um, the evangelical women were more likely to know the terms for the male anatomy than they were for female anatomy. Of course. You know, so we knew scrotum, but not clitoris, for instance, or we knew scrotum, but not vulva, um, you know, and, and that's really too bad because even if, you know, you do want kids to wait until marriage, to wait until a committed relationship, comprehensive sex ed does not stop that from happening. Like <laughs> comprehensive sex ed does not cause kids to have sex. What it does is it makes sure that when they do have sex, it's better sex. Like that's, and and multiple studies have found that too. Like it's not just ours. And so we do need to rethink this as a church because, um, yeah, there's, there's so many people getting married who don't understand basic stuff. Like even, okay. Just even, even the scenario that so many of us have had where you have a youth pastor who's like 26 years old and there's a pool party in the summer and there's a girl who doesn't want to go in the pool and he's pestering her about it. Right. Because he's, <laughs> he's never been taught about periods. Right? And he doesn't understand yeah. why this little 14 year old girl might just have her feet in the water. You know? <laughs> like we got to teach people about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And like, gosh, I don't want it to go so sad again, but like, it is devastating how little we as women have known and been taught about our bodies because our bodies endure so much and they change so much throughout the course of our lives. Like, cause even with that story, I was thinking like, Oh, but there's so many ways you can swim with your period. Mm -hmm. If she had comprehensive sex ed, she would be in the pool, you know, Mm -hmm. cause there's ways to manage it that we don't teach prepubescent girls. And then it goes all the way up into, you know, childbirth. Ugh, I don't even know if I want to read this quote, but like, again, about the coercion, like this is, this is an extreme quote, but at the same time, I saw this mirrored both overtly and low key in my churches. And this comes from a lack of, of awareness of what we endure as women. I think that we would have even tolerated this kind of thinking, um, you're talking about an organ, a pelvic organ prolapse after birth. Mm -hmm. I had a prolapse. That is when your organs literally start falling out of your vagina, your bladder and um, what else can fall out for me? It was just my bladder, but it Mm -hmm. is like, 
a major medical condition that deserves utmost Mm -hmm. respect and honor and care. And also I read statistics on it when I got my prolapse and it happens to, I don't, I don't remember the number, but it was something way too high, like 30% of women who give birth or something. And I see a pelvic floor physiotherapist when you're pregnant, everybody, it can help prevent it. If you do the exercises early. Okay. That's my soapbox. Yeah, no, exactly. And Amy Moses, Amy Moses is mine. She healed my prolapse for me. And I was horrified. I was like, why is my bladder falling out? before I ever knew that that was possible. That mm-hmm. is insane that it that I didn't know it was possible and that something like 30% or higher of women experience the same thing. And then I'm thinking about people in the world who don't even know what a pelvic floor therapist is because I just learned that term, who have just endured it. I, there's a woman in my life with a prolapse who has endured her prolapse for years, just being mm-hmm. like, this is normal. And, um, and like putting in that silicone cup to like lift your organs back into your body. And like, there's a better way. There's actually a therapist that can heal that, but we, we don't have access to that. And then the men, the Christian men in this toxic, coercive, disgusting theology, this guy talks about having to abstain from sex while his wife is recovering from her pelvic organ prolapse and says consensual is a key word. If he, he, I didn't consent to having sex for six weeks after a baby or even one week or a month during her period, then, um, then that is certainly not consensual. Another man said the period of abstinence after pregnancy and during the wife's period is not by mutual agreement. So the couple can devote themselves to prayer. It is being forced on us men because we are being told to give our wives a break. First of all, try not to throw my computer again. Second of all, you know, I hate to read that comment because I'm not trying to horrify people, but that is so common in the Christian culture that I came out of. And that is why I rage so much against it because whether you say it gently or like overtly, coercion and marital rape just is what it is. And the fact that we're not empowered to understand that our birth trauma, our period pain, our, our menopause era, our traumatic experiences that we are experiencing, that we deserve to hold as our own and be guarded and honored during those processes, which I'm sure you completely agree with. Yeah. And it's, it's really heartbreaking how many books see it differently. Um, Kevin Lehman wrote a bestseller called sheet music where he was talking about a woman's period. Yeah. Yeah. And he was talking (laughs) about a woman's period being a difficult time for her husband. Yes. Yeah. And I just, and so, you know, he was suggesting oral sex, giving, giving him oral sex and, uh, or something or a hand job to help him not watch porn during those five days. And yeah. And that's normal. And I think, I think what makes me the saddest, you know, and, and why I really appreciate this conversation with you, Brenda is like, I do, I do believe that sex is meant to be sacred and I'm excited about this journey you're on and I'll, you know, to see where you (laughs) land after all of that. I'm like, I'm wearing my purity ring again, Sheila. (laughs) Yeah. Like I, you know, and I think that there's something so beautiful about real intimacy and vulnerability, but I feel like the church has so messed this up that we've lost the ability to speak into it. And that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to reclaim, you know, is, is, we, we, 
as, as Christians, we don't have the right to speak into this space when we've caused so much pain. And so we need to acknowledge the pain that we've caused. And And we need to start thinking of a sexual ethic that goes beyond male entitlement (laughs) and, and, and gets back to what, what is humanity? Like what is dignity? And until we can get there as a, as a church, we're not going to be able to influence the culture. And so we need to stop getting mad at the culture and we need to start looking at ourselves. And that's what I'm really trying to do, because I think if we can fix the toxicity, then maybe we can start thinking deeply about this again, and we'll be able to articulate why we think sex is sacred, but we can't articulate that while we're simultaneously talking about how, you know, women should have sex so their husbands don't watch porn and we're putting men's sins on women's shoulders. Yeah. And meanwhile, your book has statistical proof that both partners' sexual satisfaction will literally skyrocket mm-hmm. if they just listen to you. Yes. Um, sorry, I almost interrupted you before, but I got so excited about like also fact-based. Like it it infuriates me to no end that I watch so many conservative commentators or I'll have debates with conservative Christians who are absolutely like hands down against comprehensive sex ed. And it's because of fallacies that have no basis in reality. Like they're going to teach five-year-olds how to have anal sex, or they're going to coach girls on how to masturbate. Like you not only have to recognize the rotten fruit of your doctrine and pay penance, true, real, like, um, what is the word when you're like really turning from sin? Oh, repentance, restitution. Yeah, like really, yeah, repentance and restitution. Like the, uh, the notion of repenting is not just doubling down and being like, well, Sheila shouldn't have told everybody we did this. It's like, no, you <laughs> repent, you sit down, you look your soul in a mirror and you address what you have done wrong. Like you have sin to me, the way I define it is harm. You're causing harm to yourself, your body, those around you, the environment. That's why environmental issues are important. That's why sexual health is important to me. That's why, you know, so many things that conservatives butt up against are important to me as a Christian, because I see the harm being caused. I see the rotten fruit on the trees. And I'm like, if you guys are really not willing to pull up these trees, it's why you're dying. And, and if you die, not literally, but if the church in this fashion dies, like I have no sorrow for that, but at the same time I do, because the thing you and I, Sheila have in common is like, so many people will be like commenting, just leave the Christian space already. Just stop saying you're a Christian because I'm standing in this gray area, trying to express my beliefs and my perspective is no, I'm staying right here because I am a Christian and it's because of my love and like profound connection I feel with spirit, with Jesus. And I'm looking at what's happening. I know what it's done to me. i like, my whole book is about the absolute pain and heartache that purity culture caused me. And then Joshua Harris apologized for his hands in that, in my forward, that to me is repentance you know, not to say anyone needs to be perfect or that every action they have after repentance is going to be above bar, but that's what I'm longing to see in the church. And I, I hope people are just receptive to what you're saying, because it's true. All of these 
things that we were told about orgasmic connected, the church as the bride and Jesus as the groom, like that can exist. It exists in your marriage. I got a hint of it in that relationship that I described to you. To me, that was like a beautiful experience in itself, my casual sex relationship. But then it also showed me so much of like, oh, that's what sex is supposed to be. Like, oh my God, that's what it feels like to be seen. And I've had that with a variety of people, but like, yeah, we're all trying to head in the same direction. It'll benefit everyone if they just listen to me and especially to you because you're being less aggressive than I am (laughs) (laughs) and more like loving and like, you know, like, hey, even in your, your forward or at some point you were like, I'm going to point out the errors of what these people have said but you extended your hand at the same time and been like, it doesn't mean everything you've ever said is wrong or that this book couldn't have helped you in other ways. Just looking for repentance is what that whole speech was just about. Yeah. And I I'm looking for it too. And I, you know, on, I think a lot of the harm was caused by the boomer generation for sure. I think Gen X, my generation was kind of sandwiched in between, <laughs> but we also didn't stop it. You know, we, we were young when, when purity culture was being taught to, to millennial teenagers and to young Gen X's and we didn't stop it. Well, my mom and I had a beautiful conversation about that once because after she saw all the pain that I went through, I was like, why did you let me do that? (laughs) You know, why did you let me? go through that culture and like, you know, believe the things that I did, or even for my dad, my dad had a failed marriage that was painful for him because they, they had, they got married so they could have sex, which is exactly what I did. So to both of them, I was like, but why didn't you stop me? And her perspective. And I bet a lot of Gen Xers feel this way is that, um, you know, she's like, I really thought it protects you. Like, I know the sex that I had that was painful outside of the church before marriage. So when you were like cutting it off and being like, none of that, I'm going to save myself for this heaven touching earth experience with one person. It sounded great to me. It sounded like you wouldn't suffer the way that I suffered, having no idea that it would actually be a compounding suffering because I suffered what she did and what purity culture did. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it's so well-intentioned and I understood it, you know, so much better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I I think it was well-intentioned, but that's, that's actually part of the point that I'm trying to say is you could have had the best of intentions, right? Like Steve Arterburn writing every man's battle may have had good intentions. I'm not really sure, you know, telling us that men just don't naturally have a Christian view of sex and that men sin because they're men. Like maybe he had good intentions and that you should bounce your eyes and pretend the women aren't there, whatever. Um, but we don't, the reader doesn't have access to your intentions. The reader only has access to your words. And if your intentions were good, but the outcome was bad, then you should have the humility to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Um, and I think healing in this area is only going to come 
when we can honestly do that. And when we can have these conversations, people who don't agree on everything, you know, but we can still talk because there's certain things that we do agree on that we need to be healthy, that there needs to be good fruit. And, and I think there's so much common ground that we can find. Um, but we're never going to learn. We're never going to heal. We're never going to get ahead unless we can tell the truth. And the truth is a lot of this stuff did harm. And continues to. (laughs) Yeah. That doesn't mean. And so we need to muddy through now. We need to figure out just as you're doing in your own life. So if that does harm, then what brings health, you know? And so, yeah, I'll, I'll be excited to see where you land, (laughs) but you know, but that's something that we can only muddy through and muddle through when we actually confront the fact that we have been hurt. And I just hope, I just hope that more people of my generation and the boomer generation and the authors that we've called out will start to, will start to apologize because I think there's a lot of healing that could happen if there really was some humility and some repentance. Yeah. And the forward motion that like proves that repentance because it Mm -hmm. changes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I know my time with you is almost up and I'm just so grateful for this conversation. I could honestly talk to you for hours. About <laughs> this. Maybe we can revisit at another time. Definitely when your next book comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess maybe if we could just leave it on a high note that I think people are very deserving of, because I know, and I've seen in my life and many others that there's so much hope on the other side, like coming out of religious trauma, especially when it's like embroiled within your sexuality, because that, that becomes an embodiment, mind, body, soul Mm -hmm. issue. Um, it becomes like a relational issue, your, your value, like your self-worth it it like encompasses so many different aspects of someone's person. So, coming out of it, I often describe it as like crawling on my hands and knees and clawing my way out of purity culture. Because when you start, it's like when the blinders get, the scales fall from your eyes and you see the toxicity for what it is, you can't unsee it. And then when you see it, it, it's, it looks like a monster, you know, every new video from John Piper or somebody, you're just like, wow, they're just really doubling down really. And, and it's, it's like painful all over again. I often describe that, that deconstruction of purity culture as a mourning process. I was raging. I was crying. I was weeping like the actual mourning process I could clock. And I'm at the point of acceptance with my own self and how I feel things need to move forward, but it's, it's impossible to accept when the church isn't coming with you of the church, but then there's still an embodied living person that is you that can be empowered. Even if your church isn't coming with you, I'm a huge advocate of leaving toxic spaces. Their pastor is still holding on to these gender binaries and these, these completely unfact-based ideas about sex, like that you can leave. So whether someone has to leave a space or not, what would you recommend for the person that is addressing these for the first time, reading your book, figuring out and processing what has happened to them, what's been done to them, how they've been deceived, and then what is on the other side of that from your experience Mm -hmm. and from your research? I think if you've been in a space where you did grow up with a lot of these messages that 
honestly, great sex rescue. And I'm not just saying this because I wrote it. Like, this is why we wrote it. So again, just read the reviews, but it can be really healing because you'll feel so validated. Like yeah. you weren't crazy. <laughs> it really was this bad. Yes. <laughs> and they really did say horrendous things. Um, and so, yeah, you were right. You were right to be traumatized. That was, that was your psyche and your body trying to protect you from all of this really harmful stuff. And that's important to know that it wasn't your fault. If you're messed up in this area, um, you weren't, you weren't bad. Um, you weren't weak, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was really traumatic. And so I think that's, that's number one is just feel validated, realize you're not alone. Um, my prayer and I know not everyone will land here and that's okay because you need to be authentic, but my prayer will be that people will see that it wasn't God that was behind those toxic messages. Yes. Um, and again, I know not everyone's going to land there, but one of the things I had to do when I was, when I was in the middle of this, cause it was really traumatic for me, especially when the big authors didn't respond well, because I thought, well, don't they love God? Like, don't they care? And I spent about two years where if I was even looking at the Bible, the only thing I could read was the gospels. Uh, the only thing I could do was just look at Jesus. I couldn't look at anything else, and, but all I could do was look at Jesus. And that's what's, that's what I've been holding on to is I'm still here because of Jesus, because he's such a tremendous person <laughs> and he really lived a life that no one else ever has. And in his death, he showed us that it's not about power. <laughs> okay, people, it's not about hierarchy. It's not about power. You know, it's about giving up the power that we have and using it to serve others. That's the point of life. Um, and I, I just think whatever journey you're on, just don't be afraid to ask the hard questions and go into spaces where people let you ask those questions. Yeah. Um, because I think God's big enough to handle it. Amen. Amen. Yeah, no, we feel the same way. Um, I got excited and interrupted you again, but yeah, I was like, well, that's, that's why I'm still a Christian because in one of my videos about deconstruction, um, we created a graphic of Jesus wearing a sweater that just said evangelical sweater, because I heard someone describe deconstructing any idea as like pulling the thread of a sweater. And then as soon as you start pulling it, like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be orgasming too. And then you just start like pulling and pulling, um, and then underneath it, like the truth doesn't have to defend itself. The truth, uh, the being of who Christ is, if you believe in Christ, if that's, you know, if you identify as a Christian, there is no fear in that you can pull any thread. And if it's a thread of truth, it's, it's not going anywhere. That being still retains its truth and power. We as, as mere mortals do not have to be holding up the power of Jesus and like adding scaffolding to make sure he doesn't fall down when we're creating these toxic messages and then afraid to question them. So I love that sentiment and I'll mirror that as well of just like, even though I really threw the baby out with the bathwater for a long time, I did that. I know now because 
you know, I was sinning. Having sex outside of marriage was a sin. So I had to disembody and completely disengage from my spirituality in order to have sex. Um, because I was still so committed to Christ. I was still Christian throughout the whole process. So the only thing I could really do, and Linda K. Klein in her book, Pure, another book that will make any purity culture survivor feel really seen. That was the first book I read where I was like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Um, we both had a shared experience of finally walking into the first bedroom in our lives and being like, Maybe this is a sin, maybe it's not, but I'm going to commit to having an embodied experience because forever I was just saying, Jesus, you wait out here. I'm doing something you hate. So we can meet back up again when I leave. And because of that, there were times I didn't advocate for myself. You know, when even being assaulted, to be honest, it ended up translating into my traumatized mind and spirit as, well, you're sinning. What do you expect? You deserve this. You're being bad. And my God, you know, all of that is so toxic. And again, I think people in the secular world hear similar messages about it being our fault when we're not in pleasure, we're in pain. So on the other side of that though, same as you, like deconstructing it, I share the same prayer that people would see what is beneath all of that toxicity and that they can still hold on to their faith and the figure of Christ as their number one and and have a million orgasms and ride into the sunset or the person <laughs> as we were originally promised <laughs> it's really just restoring what we were taught originally i think mm -hmm. i think they just showed us the wrong road to it and <laughs> it was a road to hell <laughs> yep <laughs> literally sometimes yeah well, yeah, again, I'd love to go on forever. I would also love to, at some point, address men in this equation, because are you planning on writing any books or doing studies on the men? Yeah, we actually do have a book out now, um, Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, where we talk, we talk a lot to guys about how this isn't an entitlement and you're not, you weren't created to lust, oh, you know, you can, yeah. and like noticing is not lusting just because you notice something does not mean that you've sinned. And so let's get this right. Let's get rid of the shame that's here. So exactly. Yeah. Men, men made to feel like monsters mm -hmm. uh, hurt them too. Definitely. Mm -hmm. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Do you want to advertise yourself for a second and say where everyone can buy your beautiful books? Sure. So great sex rescue everywhere. Just go on Amazon. Um, you can find me at the bear marriage podcast every Thursday. Um, uh, my website is in the middle of being moved. So I don't know when this is going live. I'm either going to be at to love, honor, and vacuum.com or bearmarriage.com. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> but you can find me on Instagram. That's probably the best way. Um, Cause that's got all my links there. So yeah. I love Insta your Instagram too. Yep. Sheila Gregoire on Instagram. My fixed <laughs> it for you are phenomenal. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's it, everyone. We love you all so much. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends, donate to my Patreon or Venmo if you can. Please go by Sheila's The Great Sex Rescue. And we love you. God bless. <laughs>